Welcome to Charlotte Readers Podcast, where books and writing topics are center stage and where authors give voice to the written words. I'm Landis Wade, and on behalf of my co-host, Hannah LaRue and Sarah Archer, we thank you for listening. The Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network. Listen to your city at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Hey, readers and writers, welcome to this episode number 348 of Charlotte Readers Podcast Beyond 300. I'm here with co-host Sarah Archer and Hannah LaRue, and once again, uh, baby Gwen is hanging on to Hannah, so you might hear her <laughs> in the background today. Uh, but we've got a great lineup for you today. Yeah, we got a, she's a, another special guest. So we have a double author feature today. We first feature author and true crime podcaster Andrea Dunlop and her novel, Women Are the Fiercest Creatures. Um, what Tara Conklin, New York Times bestselling author, called a stylish, timely, buzzworthy literary thriller that I tore through with glee. That sounds super good. And then we also yeah. have a feature with author Simon Van Boy in his novel, The Presence of Absence, which author Claire Fullerton, writing for the New York Journal of Books, called A Tour de Force, a mind-bending, affecting story that breaks the heart open with startling clarity. Yeah, but first, what's up with the podcast books? This month, uh, we're celebrating the release of book five in the Right Quotes series titled uh, Writing Techniques and Characters. Yeah, we're super excited to bring this one out. Um, these have very inspirational and practical quotes in these books. They come from over 500 podcast interviews with hardworking, award-winning, and New York Times bestselling authors who live in more than 33 U.S. states and five countries. Yeah, this book reveals how writers really feel about writing techniques and characters. Um, to learn more, just head over to our website, charlottereaderspodcast.com, and click on the Podcast Books tab in the menu bar. Um, you can order the book online and in print wherever books are sold. Also, don't forget that the first book in the Write Quotes series, which focuses on the writing life, can be downloaded for free online. That's our gift to the writing universe. So just look for that <laughs> link on the podcast books page of our website. Yeah, and you can also pre-order um, the upcoming books in the series now. And when you do, you help support the podcast. Uh, we're, we're already up to uh, five books now. And uh, the sixth one is going to be on writing community revision and editors with an August 1 release. And book seven is the emotional writing journey with a September 1st release. And book eight is publishing and bookmarking with an October 1st release. If you want to receive all eight of these wonderful looks for free, you can join our street team. You can just go to the link and the contact tab on the menu bar at charlottereaderspodcast.com or also on the podcast books page of the website. There's a link there. All you have to do to receive all ebooks free is just agree to uh, leave short, honest reviews online about the books. Just a few words about how you felt about them. Um, these books aren't heavy reads, but they're full of weighty tips and reflections. Yeah, and don't forget that if you become a Patreon supporter of the show for as little as $5 a month, we'll give you all the books for free before they release, and that's in addition to the 150 exclusive interviews um, that you'll be able to access on our channel on the craft and business of writing. So lots of good stuff. We have an affiliation with Libro.fm because you can get audiobooks from them, and when you do, you support independent bookstores. If you'd like to sign up with them for your audiobooks, use the promo code Charlotte Reader and claim your free audiobook. All right, here we are with Act One. Uh, this is a interview portion of the show. We've actually got two interviews today. It's a double feature. The first one is with Andrew Dunlop. I had a great time interviewing her. The book title is "Women Are the Fiercest Creatures." 
Um, Andrea is author of the novels Losing the Light, She Regrets Nothing, We Came Here to Forget, and the novella Broken Bay. In addition to her book, she's the host and creator of a true crime podcast called Nobody Should Believe Me, and she lives in Seattle with her husband and two children. Yeah, this uh, book, Women Are the Fiercest Creatures, it follows uh, a woman, uh, Anna Sarnoff, who's She's divorced from this uh, tech, they call him a wonderkind, Jake Sarnoff. Uh, she was forced out of the company that she helped Jake build. She's trying to pick up the pieces of her life. Uh, she's been a solo parent, uh, teenage boys, and, you know, to make things worse, uh, Jake's trying to get her back. But Jake has also taken on a, uh, a young uh, new wife, and uh, she's pregnant, and there are complications there between the relationships. And then across town, there's another woman, uh, Samantha Flores Walsh, and she's Jake's college girlfriend, and he dumped her, and she had something to do with the business, too, and she might be pretty much involved in some of the things that uh, relate to this IPO, but uh, she's kind of on the side. It's a real interesting story about a guy who basically takes advantage of all the women in his life, and just like that movie, if you saw it, 9 to 5, that was Dolly Parton, and uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, who else is in that? Jane Fonda, you know, the, the man gets his comeuppance because... Women, in fact, are the fiercest creatures. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. <laughs> yeah. And uh, it's got a little praise. Uh, Tara Conklin, New York Times bestselling author, as, as Hannah said at the beginning, it's a stylish, timely, buzzworthy literary thriller that I tore through with glee. And I really did read it fast, too. It was, it was one of these books that you're just, Jake Sarnoff is the kind of guy you love to hate. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, they, uh, the women, uh, have a good time plotting and planning uh, without even knowing they're plotting and planning with each other. So it's interesting. So with all that, uh, let's listen to the interview. Andrea, welcome to Charlotte Ridge Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, congratulations on Women Are the Fiercest Creature. I am now a fierce fan. I love the book. Oh, thank you so much. Thank <laughs> you. <laughs> yeah, it was a lot of fun. Uh, it, let's, let's, uh, we're just going to kind of jump right into the story here uh, because um, I've got a number of questions about it. But you, you, you've got four main characters. you got Jake Sarnoff. He, he's a man that we love to hate in this book. <laughs> <laughs> you got Anna, Anna Sarnoff and uh, his soon-to-be ex-wife and then Samantha Flory as well. She's a woman who has a secret past with Jake. We won't reveal anything. And then there's Jake's uh, young new wife, uh, trophy wife perhaps, uh, Jessica uh, but she turns out to be a little bit more than that. But it's all set in this high-tech world with Jake's rising social media platform about to go public. And um, I, I'm just curious, uh, how did this sort of universe, this mixing, this high-tech social media with these interesting relationships where a man is trying to take advantage of these three women, how, how did that come to obsess you enough to spend time writing a novel about it? <laughs> I love that framing because you do have to be obsessed with something to spend enough time to get that many words on the page for sure. You know, this book really, I mean, I I really consider this book sort of my, you know, it's my first book as a mother. I started writing it when I was pregnant with my older daughter, who's now four and a half. And I finished writing it when I was pregnant with my son, who's 10 months old. And as far as the, you know, elements of tech, I live in Seattle where this book is based. It's uh, based in a fictional suburb of Seattle. For those that know it, it's sort of a mix between Edmonds and uh, Mercer Island. Um, And it's really, you know, I think our our town has changed a lot. Uh, This whole area has changed a lot over the, you know, I grew up here. 
I moved to California for school. I moved to New York City for a, for a while in my 20s and then moved back. And so I've really seen how much tech, the tech industry has changed Seattle and really changed the character of Seattle. And of course, like, you know, I'm a, I'm a millennial. I'm an elder millennial. I just turned 41. And so really, like, I've been around as social media. You know, I, I'm it, sort of the probably like the the youngest person the, we're the youngest generation of people who remember what life was like before the internet right <laughs> it's a very specific sort of point right because we didn't grow up with it didn't grow up with social media but sort of have seen those things evolved and those things were really you know a lot of those companies were founded by people who are roughly my age and so i think that that's something that is just very you know very ever present in all of our lives but but i think it's you know i have a specific vantage point on the characters are my age as well and so you know, I think with these founders, um, you know, there's just such a sort of, um, you know, there's so much, um, there's so much myth making around social media entrepreneurs in particular, right? We just obsess over them in a way that we don't obsess over other entrepreneurs. They become these like sort of looming characters in our lives. And obviously, you know, the ones that are famous are, are white and male and that that's who's dominated the space. As I was doing some research for the book, I came across this, um, this, this figure that I, I have not been able to to let go of psychologically. Speaking is, of obsession, is that the two percent figure? That would be the two percent. So yeah, so yeah. the the fact that um two percent of VC funding, which is venture capital, you know, the way a lot of these companies get going, or all of them really, or grow, um, you know, only two percent goes to female led teams, despite the fact that female led teams consistently outperform male led teams, and mm. so that just really stuck with me. It's kind of one of those things where you're like, oh, okay, well, that explains what I'm seeing. <laughs> you know, you're like, it's not, you're not imagining it. It's, um, yeah. That men are getting sort of more opportunities in this space by a big, um, by a big margin. And so I think, and I'm also just very interested in this sort of, um, you know, the, the narrative of the woman behind the man, right, is this mm. sort of idea that like a lot of men are, propped up in ways that we don't really fully look at by the women in their lives. And I think sometimes that can be in a benevolent way, right, in a way that's not actually a problem. I mean, you think even with my own parents, you know, my dad's an entrepreneur, he has um, a software company, very much not a Jake Sarnoff, if anyone's wondering, <laughs> like, not at all based on my dad. Fortunately, none of the men in my life are, are like Jake Sarnoff, um, although yeah. I've known many, many Jakes. Um, but yeah, I mean, he, you know, and certainly like he would never have been able to accomplish what he has accomplished without my mom, right? Who's there to right. take care of him and make sure everything happens on the domestic side and, you know, make sure there's like food in the house and like, you know, those small details. Um, and so, and I mean, let alone, you know, have a family, right? Because she was a stay at home mom when we were young. And and so I'm, I'm just very interested in, in those dynamics and, and how they come to be. And I, I also have a, um, you know, I had a grandmother on my father's side who was, both my grandmothers were really smart and didn't really get an opportunity to have um, a career. And, it, you know, my granny in particular, you know, worked at Bletchley during the war. She's there. They're British on that side of the family and, you know, was this really brilliant woman and then had to go home and sort of forget about all of that. And I, mm -hmm. I think that was really, I know that was really extremely hard on her. So I think it's all of those things really, you know, that, and, and sort of looking at the Bletchley connection that got me interested in, you know, that was some of the first like real computing that happened. And, um, you know, there was obviously a very, the Enigma machine there, and there was a lot of um, women working in computing mm. at that time. And I was very interested to find that out. And so I sort of got very obsessed with like, how did women get pushed out of tech? Um, and, and that's, I think, where where all of this 
came from. So there's a lot of things in the mix here, but they'll probably come through in their various ways. That's great. Well, uh, I love the phrase elder millennial. (laughs) (laughs) And, 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 uh, and Jake, Jake Sarnoff, he's got uh, the sleaze factor on him. One to 10 is like 11, you know, it's like, uh, (laughs) you know, and it's great because in a novel, you got to find somebody you love to hate. And, uh, he, he, he's the guy I have to tell you. Uh, it's kind of funny. I'm kind of dating myself, but, uh, it kind of reminds me that has that nine to five feel with Dolly Parton. Who's played oh my God. Jane, Jane Iconic. Fonda. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I watched that movie on a plane recently. And yeah. um, first of all, that movie is just incredible. Yeah. It was really shocking and depressing how yeah. timely that movie feels. I was like, you yeah. could make this exact same movie today yeah. and it would be just as, I mean, just as relevant pretty much. I mean, there was like, only the fashion feels dated, unfortunately, like the office politics, the sort of like the, you know, how they come in the spoiler alert for yeah. someone who hasn't watched this, you know, 50 yeah. year old movie, you know, <laughs> the way that they come in at the end and they're like, now we have a daycare. I'm like, oh my yeah. God, they're like, what? <laughs> These women make them president. Like, I, I yeah. love this. I love all of this. <laughs> yeah. And you've given it, you sort of given it a modern vibe. And I wonder how much you enjoyed, uh, you know, empowering these women through fiction and how you think fiction helps sort of, uh, people see things they might not otherwise see that's right in front of them in real life. Yeah. I, I mean, I did, I really, I really enjoyed spending time with these characters. You know, I, especially Sam and Anna, who are are our main main characters that you hear from. Um, And, you know, I, I like that. I, I feel like they're, they're both good people and they're good mothers, but obviously they have made some very interesting mistakes. And I don't like writing about anybody who's not made interesting mistakes. Otherwise, you know, that's, that's just a boring character. And I think, you know, by the time you're in, in the, in, as I, as I say, at the very beginning of midlife, which I sort of think of, of as 40, um, you know, you, you have made some interesting mistakes probably in your life and you mm-hmm. have some past and you have some history. And so I thought it was really interesting to write about characters who are in that same spot that I'm in. Um, but yeah, I think as far as, you know, what fiction, what makes fiction really special. And, you know, I, I have another sort of like nonfiction side of my life, which mm-hmm. I'm working on a nonfiction book. I'm, um, I have my podcast, which is all nonfiction. Mm-hmm. And it's really interesting how those two storytelling, you know, how those two types of storytelling function differently. And I think what's really powerful about fiction, obviously like nonfiction can be powerful because you're like, there's real people, these really happened. That sort of gets people on one level. But fiction, I think, can be so much sneakier and even Mm -hmm. more effective in that way because it's really an opportunity and an invitation to see something from someone else's perspective. And that's one of the most powerful things I can that, that that it can do. And I think because you know, when you're in that space where you're reading fiction, you know, I find you're like, your guard is down, right? You're just having a good time. You're enjoying yourself. You're turning the pages. And I always think that's my first job as a writer, right? It's just keep people invested in the story, make them care about the characters, like whether or not they, you know, get the takeaway message that I wanted them to get is sort of like not my business, you know, <laughs> like I just, you want to get them invested in the story. But I think when we get invested in in stories and we get attached to characters, then we really, you know, we see things from their perspective. And and I think it's a really good way to build empathy and understanding for people that have not had the same life experience as you. Yeah. And I want to ask you about the podcast before we finish, but before I do, um, you know, you've already talked about the setting of the novel that uh, you live kind of in the area where this is set. Uh, but the characters sometimes can be a combination of, uh, you know, something you learn about people or it could be from pulling from your own past experience. I'm just curious, are there 
any traits in these three characters that you find in yourself or if not that you'd like to emulate i think that all of my characters have pieces of me i mean i think yeah. in order to write them even jake you know i think like jake yes he is sort of the punching <laughs> he is the sort of punching bag of the novel right but like yeah. you know i think jake is a person who went through a lot of his life maybe not thinking about how he was getting opportunities that other people weren't getting and i think that i've probably been guilty of that i think that's sort of a you know you get to the middle of your life and you're like oh like everyone really mm -hmm. does start out in a different spot <laughs> um you know and i think like i think there there are things that like i i empathize with him about right like he he doesn't think he's the bad guy he he thinks he's trying his best to be a good person he's not doing a very good job like that's right. but i think you know like it I think he also is is very real. I think there's like he's a person who has not lived up to his own ideals. And and one might hope for Jake that these experiences that he goes through during the book will will help him help him to be a, a better person and, and to grow. But yeah, I mean, certainly with, you know, Sam and Anna and even Jessica, I, you know, thinking back on like my younger self and what would have happened if I, you know, I did not get married when I was young. I got married when I was um, I got married when I was how old was I? 34. So, um, you know, I was not in my 20s um but yeah i mean i, th I think like i i definitely connect i definitely connect with all of them um you know in in different ways and i think i yeah. and i have a great deal of empathy for all of all of my characters and i love them i love even the bad ones <laughs> yeah exactly uh well let's talk about this title a second because it appears uh of course on the cover of the book but also appears in uh in conversation uh in the book and uh you know women are the fiercest creatures and there's a lot that can be packed into that phrase, you know, fierce in a good way, maybe when it comes to striving for achieving success, or maybe fierce in an evil way when it comes to settling, you know, old scores, uh, or fierce as a warning to men. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and I'm just wondering what comes to mind for you when you think of that title, uh, women are the fiercest creatures. And do you happen to remember when, when that occurred to you as you're writing this book? Yeah, so it's really funny. So first of all, I have to give credit where credit's due for the for the title. And this is this is a funny story. It's a funny writerly story, which yeah. I think you'll appreciate. So um, it, the original line that this that the title is taken from was originally different. It was Mother's Nature's Fiercest Creature. So, mm. um, you know, slight, slightly different ethos. But right. then my wonderful editor who I was working with at Zibby Books at the time, Lee Newman, who's an incredibly talented writer herself, um, misremembered it as women are the fiercest creature. <laughs> and then I said, oh, no, that's way better. Let's use that. <laughs> so then that became the line. And then that also became the title. So but yeah, I think as as far as what that brings to mind for me, I mean, I think like where, you know, sort of if you're unpacking it, right, like the fierceness and the sort of creature, right, sort of the animal nature of, of the phrase, you know, that really came to me during childbirth. Um, I was very lucky. I had really good experiences during childbirth both times. Um, and I understand that this is not an empowering experience for, for everyone. And that's for a lot of reasons. For me, I was lucky and it was. And I just remember thinking like, oh, oh, like I completely reconceptualized strength when I was in that moment, right? Mm -hmm. Because I was like, physically, psychologically, you know, every like, you really only can say I feel after that moment, I was like, okay, it, you know, we usually say, oh, well, men are stronger than women, right? Like, so if you're talking about upper body strength, sure. <laughs> yeah. But like, really, every other kind of strength, like, no, 
it's, it's just no. not, it's not accurate. Right. And I was if like, you this had is... 10 men in the room and you asked how many of them would like to have a baby themselves, I'm not sure any hands would go up. Right. Yeah, so. I mean, right. And it's, and you know, I mean, even sort of watching my husband go through that experience with me yeah. and like, it totally blew his mind. And yeah. you know, I'm a, like, I, I've been an athlete my whole life. And so I it really like the physical part of it was very interesting to me that it's like, oh, this is like a big endurance event, you know? And, mm. and I just thought like, oh my God, like regular, just normal, totally not extraordinary women are just out there doing this every day. And like most women will go through this experience in their life. And, and it just completely sort of turned it on its head for me. And then I, I also think in, you know, to, to, to your point, like, yeah, so there's the positive side of it, right? Like women are the fiercest creatures, like, hooray, that's like a, a nice rallying cry. Right. Mm -hmm. But I also think like, I believe, and speaking of things that I'm very into and sort of obsessed with, like the way we underestimate women goes both ways, right? Like we under, we underestimate the good things they're capable of. And we also vastly underestimate the bad things that they're capable of. And that is, speaks to the other side of my work, working on a Munchausen by proxy, medical child abuse, which is primarily, and by primarily, I mean like 96% of female crime. Mm -hmm. um, so, and, and people just sort of refuse to see it. And I think there is like a very gendered aspect to that. And so I think like sort of the, the underestimating of women is sort of a real overarching, um, a real overarching theme of my work. And I think it's because we've sort of denied women the full spectrum of humanity. And so like, I'm trying to put them sort of in this box. And so I think that when you do that, you you miss what great things people are capable of. And you also maybe don't see because women are sort of seen as this benign force, especially mothers, um, you know, you don't see the bad things that they're capable of and how dangerous that they can be in, yeah. in their, you know, in their worst form. It's an interesting point in that. You know, I was raised in the South in my second book. I had a lot of too many men and not of women in my, in my daughter pointed out to me, she said, Dad, you know, and she's in her mid 30s. She said, women can be evil, too. You know, you ought to make one of the bad guys a woman in this book. You know, that's a fair point, you know, but I was trying to I was trying to keep them out of that mess, you know. Yeah. But, uh, you know. Uh, well, look, you've got a, uh, a, a little reading here you're going to do from us for us, which uh, I believe comes from the beginning of the book, correct? Yeah. I'm just going to go ahead and, and read the prologue. So we'll, we'll begin at the beginning, as it were. Okay. It was the middle of the night, and Jake Sarnoff could not sleep. He paced one of the many bedrooms at the far end of the house. The rooms were meant for guests, which he and his wife almost never had. Between the arrival of their new baby, his divorce from his previous wife, and his company's IPO, he wasn't sleeping much at all. He gazed out the window. He'd worked hard for a view like this. Nestled into the cliffs, the 8,000-square-foot home overlooked Puget Sound with a private glass atrium for his meditation practice. Nothing disrupted the trees and water, that feeling of being perched on the edge of the natural world. And yet it was only a short walk to charming downtown Portside. Seattle proper was only a 30-minute drive away. A few miles away, Anna Sarnoff was sleeping fitfully in the house she'd once shared with Jake. She had the television on in the background, reruns playing to canned laughter. In the morning, she'd wake up to a hangover and to a feeling of unease that had been growing in the pit of her stomach. Down on the other side of town, in her cozy two-bedroom bungalow on a quiet side street, Samantha Flores Walsh was sleeping better than she had in a long time. Despite the stress of the past few weeks, she felt relieved. The truth would soon be out. She was about to be free. Jake adjusted the blinds. Down the hall, his wife Jessica slept alongside their tiny six-week-old daughter. Neither of them had any idea that in just a few short hours, Jessica would wake up and start screaming. Jake would never forget the sound of that animal howl, the sight, 
of the rumpled, rumpled comforter where their baby girl no longer lay nestled beside her mother. She was gone. Okay, you <laughs> you pulled us in. I, I'm curious about the the prologue here because uh, people go back and forth about whether to have a prologue. It does pull us in, but then we go back uh, in time, and then um, I'm really enjoying the whole book. And, and then we get to later in the story where this baby just I said, oh yeah, that was back in the prologue. There, I remember that. You know, uh, so did y'all did y'all go back and forth with whether to have a prologue or whether just to start? right in the middle of the action with uh, with Jake getting his uh, New York Times expose about the last good man standing in tech. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we so this is a book and, and, you know, all of my books have been different, but this this is a book that went through many, many revisions, which actually right. is pretty typical for me. I, I yeah. like to sort of write these very bloated first drafts that are like 100,000 yeah. words and then go from there um, and just put it through the wash how many times how many times it needs to go to, to be readable. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I do like the device of a prologue. Yeah. It is I, I think it can be, you know, it, it works in some instances, it does, doesn't in others, but it's it's a nice way of allowing for or a little bit more backstory and what yeah. was because you know something's going to happen right you know you're barreling towards some event yeah, so i think yeah. that that can allow <laughs> you to do a little more like of your world building that you want to do and for for this book we know one of the trickiest things was all the moving in time right because you're mm -hmm. talking about like when you're talking about sam and jake's story and also anna and jake's story you know you're 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 talking about people with a lot of history and so there's the question of like how do you give some of that information and give some of that backstory without like slowing the narrative down. And so I think putting something like, okay, there's going to be a missing baby. All right, let's, right, let's right. figure out how we got here. You know, I think it's like that, that turned out to be a device that worked really well for this. Well, but but the can be tricky. Yeah. Yeah. The nice thing is that uh, it what that wasn't all the book was about. So, you know, it, what I loved about it is that I, that I really did kind of forget. I mean, the, the prologue pulled me in, but I kind of forgot it because I got into the rest of the story and then when I got to the point when that brings us into the story again with the missing baby, I go, oh, okay, yeah. yeah. And actually, I went back and read the first page again. And it's only one page, so, you know, yeah. uh, to, to kind of get your head back in that. And it was a nice it was a nice thing to do. Well, what I'd like to do now, if we could, is shift to um, a few topics on, on the writing life and writing in general. You've got more than 15 years' experience uh, in the book publishing business. You've got four novels. Uh, I'm just curious uh, with that background – you run into writers all the time. You do a little teaching. Uh, you know, what are a few pieces of advice that you give regularly to writers who are coming up to you saying, "Now, what do I need to do to get uh, to get my book published by a traditional publisher?" I mean, I know, yeah. I, know you get, I know you get cornered all the time. Right? <laughs> <laughs> um, I do. That's that's yeah. accurate. Um, yeah, and I mean, I'm I'm happy to talk about it. And actually, most of the teaching I do, I've never done any teaching on writing. Um, I do teaching on publishing. So when right. I do stuff for our local literary arts place, which is Hugo House here in Seattle's wonderful spot. Um, I do I do things on like, how do you get an agent? How do you market your right. book? So that's that's really my background is in, you know, is in, on the pub publicity and marketing side. Um, yeah, so I mean, I, I think like the only advice, like the only advice there is really is to hang in there. I mean, mm -hmm. it's, you know, you can kind of talk specifics about right. like how to query an agent or, you know, like, okay, you got to have your manuscript in the best shape possible. How do you do that? Talk about writing workshops, talk about beta readers and, and all that kind of thing. But like, that's something, I mean, you could ask me that or you could Google it and it's going to be the same right. answer, right? I mean, I know, I know. <laughs> I mean, I do feel like there is kind of this element of like, 
you want an answer for me that I'm not going to be able to give you. <laughs> like, I think you want to know, like, how do I speed through this process? And right. there isn't any way to do that. And, you know, most of the writers that you talk about will tell you about their years and years and me included years and years of rejection, close calls, um, you know, ups and downs once you do get published. Cause you know, like you, you kind of work your whole life to get up to getting that first book published. And then you're like, now my life is different and I'm a published author. And then it's like, no, it actually, yeah. now you yeah. just have to write the next book. That's the beginning. Um, the beginning yeah it's the beginning of a, of a new sort of like you're like oh I, I i'm over the wall and then you're like oh it's just more walls on the yeah. other side of this wall um so yeah i think like really but resilience is is just the name of the game and in terms of especially like you know being being mid-career and having you know four books under my belt it really occurs to me that like oh the the only thing you can do is hang in i mean mm -hmm. because you can't control the industry you can't control where where the the sort of moods are at, you know, in publishing. And it really is like, don't ever think that publishing knows what it's doing more than it does, because <laughs> that's the insight I can give having been on the other side of it. I mean, yeah. I went into it at 22 being like, oh my God, I'm working at Random House and there's all these brilliant people. And like, I'm gonna learn, you know, how books are made and how, you know, the sausage is made or whatever. And, you know, yes, like book publishing is full of brilliant people. It also is a completely bananas industry. I always mm -hmm. just say it's like a casino, you know, where everyone's taking bets. And then some nights, like everyone at the casino is drunker than other nights, right? Like that is publishing <laughs> for you. And like, I love, I love and hate the industry. I think that's how most authors feel about it. But it's like, it's very mercurial. It is stubborn. It's a very old school industry. It's a very like, industry that comes from a small segment of the population that everyone can guess what I mean by that. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, it's not like it's not the be all end all. And I think I've, you know, yes, traditional publishing, you know, for someone who writes in a genre like mine, and at the pace that I do, you know, there's not a, it's much harder path for like self publishing, but I have friends that are that do both. I have friends that are self published authors, I have friends that self publish and traditionally publish. And, you know, like there's really cool opportunities there as well. So I would just in encourage people to figure out what's right for them as an author. And it's like, okay, like giving writing advice is like giving diet advice, yeah, right? It's yeah, like exactly. there, there's only one thing where it's just like consistency is the only thing, right? And then also like everyone is different. So everybody is different. Every writer is different. So um, yeah, but I mean, I think like, I think like if you hang in there, that's 90% of it, right? Okay, That's really true. Well, you began your career as a um, uh, in-house publicist, I think, and with Random House, and uh, you worked. You've you've done social media work, and this kind of gets to the publicity side. There's a sort of a myth out there: people that get into writing initially and think, "Well, if I just get traditionally published, they'll take care of all the publicity." <laughs> um, things have changed over the years, and you've now seen it. Uh, but I'm wondering how how your experience working as a publicist has helped you when it comes to marketing your own books, and if you could shed a little light. For those who don't know the what goes on the inside, I mean, I've always joked that uh, it's kind of like banks. You know, they lend money to the people who don't need it. They give publicity to the authors who don't need it. I don't, <laughs> I, I don't know what the, I don't know what really goes on in there. But what are your thoughts on the current state of publicity and traditional publishing, and how has that experience helped you realize you've got to do some things yourself? Yeah, I mean, that's no, that's a really good analogy, actually. And I think that's, that's really true. And, and, you know, what happens in especially at big houses, um, is that, you know, they have one or two lead titles per season. And often, as you said, those are like celebrity books or someone that like really doesn't need but and that's the one they put all the budget. Towards. So yeah, that does happen. And it is frustrating. Um, but I think, 
you know, your publisher is like one piece of the puzzle, right? And what's really changed since I started, I mean, I started working in publishing in 2004. So certainly like social media tools were not where they are now. And there was not this just like explosive universe of ways to connect with readers that there is now. And that can also be really overwhelming. And I, I sympathize with that. But I just encourage people to like, you are always going to be the one who cares about your books the most. And so you have to be like the keeper of your career. And hopefully, you know, like I'm very lucky my agent, Carly Waters, is really amazing with social media and marketing. She has a podcast. She has great social media accounts herself that have a lot of followers. So she's been in a really excellent par partner in, in my marketing efforts. Um, and, you know, my publishers have, have also like been, you know, uh, sometimes more helpful than others, but like, you know, I mean, I've, I've had great people working on my books as well with Atria and also with Zippy Books, you know, Zippy Books is a much different experience. They have only one book a month. So they really, um, they really did a great job launching this book. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, you're always going to be the one that cares the most. And, you know, it's really also about getting readers and keeping them. And you're probably only going to publish a book every couple of years, if you're like most of us at, at most. And so you want to figure out other ways to connect with them. And so I always just encourage people to find like, just find one thing, you know, whether it's writing a newsletter or having a podcast or being on Instagram or being on book talk or just like whatever it is that you enjoy the most, just find one thing and be consistent at it. And that's fine. Don't try and do everything. Um, but no, certainly, <clears throat> yeah, certainly I think it was very helpful for me because since I'd been in publicity, I didn't have as many illusions going in. I was like, oh, I know what this process is going to look like. They're going to do X, Y, Z with like traditional media. They're going to do some bookstore placement. They're going to do blah, blah, blah. But like, there's also like a lot that I'm going to have to do. And I'm, and I knew I was like a small potato, right? Because it was my first book and I didn't get like some, you know, massive, huge, you know, blowout advance. So I was like, I, I sort of knew where I was on the food chain. And, and that was tremendously helpful because I was like, okay, I, I was very realistic about what kind of support I was going to get. Yeah, we had one author on the show say, you know, when you're an author, you should uh, have reasonable expectations and then lower them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then also, like, don't let that get you down, you right, know, like, right. it just I think it's always helpful to remember, like, and I feel like I am able to remember, I'm much more able to sort of really hold on to this four books in than I was like one or two or three books in, mm -hmm. um, you know, where you're just like, you know, it really to get a book published at all, it's a cool thing. You know, yeah, it's amazing yeah. that people will spend their time and hard earned money to spend time in your imaginary worlds. And like, it's a big accomplishment on its own. It's really easy to lose sight of that once you're in the mix. But just like, you know, that like, just in, enjoy that have something else you can do for money for heaven's sake. Um, yeah. And, you know, <laughs> exactly. Well, in the few minutes we've got left, I want to talk, uh, I will, I will tell listeners that uh, you, you can go to her, your website and we've got a link and we'll have a link in the show notes. You can watch some videos that you've done on getting motivated and habits and getting stuck and meeting goals. But I want to talk with a few minutes about the true crime podcast, because uh, I listened uh, this morning to the, uh, bits and pieces of the first episode, and I want to go now and listen to the to the whole podcast. It's really uh, interesting to me. You took kind of a journalistic approach. Uh, you, you didn't do a, you know, the kind I'm doing here. Our interview authors. You didn't do a, you know, writing life thing. You went and you took a particular, you know, nonfiction topic that was inspired by your own life situation with your sister, um, and really is nonfiction, and it's not. Podcasting, is, particularly that kind of podcasting, is not easy to do. It takes a lot of time. And could you just share with our listeners a little bit about your podcast and how you got into it? 
Yeah, absolutely. So I have a true crime investigative podcast called Nobody Should Believe Me. It's an exploration of Munchausen by proxy. As you said, it was inspired by a situation in my own family that I get into a little bit in season one, and that I'm actually getting into quite a lot more in season two, which we have coming up in uh, in June. So um, yes, it is a very work, work intensive podcast to make. I actually, I, I collaborate with a local studio called Large Media here. Um, and I actually, I met my producer, Tina Knoll, who is completely brilliant and is very responsible for a lot of the reason the show is is so good and so well made. Um, and, you know, I got to know her because we were working on this other project and I just really, you know, it was around the time that I was getting into some of this more like I'm on this committee with the American Professional Society on the Abuse of Children and have been sort of trying to find, figure out what I can do to be helpful in this space about raising awareness about um, medical child abuse and Munchausen by proxy. And I just thought, oh my gosh, this is such a good fit for a podcast. I love podcasts. I'm a huge podcast listener. Um, I'm not actually much of a, I'm not a huge true crime listener. I mean, I loved serial and like, I like, there's a few of them that I like, but I don't really get into sort of the, the gorier stuff. But um, yeah, so I just thought, oh, this is a really good format. And I was just really interested in the way of, you know, podcasts do storytelling and especially that like, you know, those that are like serial or S town or like that sort of those, those sort of where you're telling one story across a whole season and kind of taking these other, you know, side roads. And and I just was meeting all these interesting people with all these interesting stories and these really amazing experts that had so much to share. And I just really wanted to find a way to, to, to make that accessible and share that with people. Yeah. Which is harder novel writing or podcasting? <sighs> I mean, well, that's, I mean, I have a whole team with podcasting, yeah, right? Like, yeah, I mean, yeah. from, I, I do a lot on the show. Like, I don't yeah. want to sort of like um, totally take away from my contribution. I, I host it and I'm the creative and ex- creator and executive producer. And I do like all the reporting and all the interviews. But I mean, I have someone doing, you know, I have an amazing collaborator in my producer. She's very much a creative partner. We have an audio engineer. We have, you know, an editor. So, I mean, we have a lot of, there's like a whole team with me, novel writing. It's just me. And then my agent when she reads things and then my editor when they when they read things so i mean it's it's a it's just so different um i mean and i think it's it's like the same challenge in a lot of ways yeah, really it it's is. like you you want to figure out you're trying to get people's attention you're trying to get people's attention and hold their attention and make them care about something and and that is like a really interesting it's been really interesting to navigate it in these other spaces yeah i mean it is story to is storytelling it's just a different medium of telling a story right it is. And I mean, I'm writing a nonfiction book right now. I'm co-writing it with the detective who's on the podcast. And that is super challenging. I'm like writing nonfiction is very hard because you have to do a lot of research and you have to stick to facts and then try and figure out a way to make it narratively interesting. And these stories, you know, we're telling three cases and it's they're very complicated. So it's been really it's been like a fun challenge and very rewarding but that I think is like the most difficult project I'm, I'm working yeah. on. Well, I've got here what we call sort of an indie podcast. I started it because I wanted to learn all the secrets of writing from all the authors around the world here. So, uh, you know, we just interview and ask those questions. Uh, I'm guessing, did you kind of pitch your idea to, to someone or did you just, is this uh, uh, something that you own and control? You just kind of figure out. Um, that? <laughs> That's like an interesting story for over a drink. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, I, I brought it up to my 
producer. Um, but I mean, we, I, I was lucky enough to be able to, to fund the first season myself. We did sell it to yeah. a big company. We oh, yeah. did not end up going forward with them. Um, that was a whole, again, like drama for another day. Yeah. Um, yeah. So right now we are, we are, we are an indie podcast. We are, we do have an advertising partner, so that's great. But I, yeah. I do think there's a lot of value to being independent. Um, I think, especially because, you know, we are, it's, it's a, it's a it's a podcast that takes risks you know yeah, like yeah, i want exactly. to talk about this and i don't want to be sort of uh, afraid i want to be able to do bold reporting on this topic because i think that's what's needed and so for this show in particular i think it has made a lot of sense for us well i'd never heard about this thing medical child abuse and uh the story about your sister um and her situation uh is uh it, it's it's you know fascinatingly depressing uh, to listen to, but uh, the whole thing that, you, I mean, I listened to it and, and it's done really well. So, hey, I can sit here, I, I'm, I'm violating my own rules about how long I should be interviewing <laughs> you because uh, we started talking about podcasting after talking about That's this. right. I, and yeah. I'm just realizing that I'm, I am I may be late to something else, yeah, but I'm I can because I'm having, no, it's, I'm having <laughs> such a good time chatting with you as well. Right, so. Right. so we're, we're going to, uh, we're going to sign off uh, now. I want to thank you, uh, Andrew, for, being on the show and uh, for, for this uh, wonderful conversation. Well, thank you so much for having me. This was a great chat. We have a newsletter called Beyond 300, and we'd love to have you sign up. This is where we share what's coming on the podcast, provide helpful links, and keep you updated on the podcast and the hosts. You can sign up at charlottereaderspodcast.com or the websites of the hosts, leandiswade.com, sararcherwrites.com, or spellboundpublicrelations.com. And by the way, we won't spam you because that takes way too much time. All right, here we are in Act Two, the second interview of our double feature. Uh, we have um, an interview with uh, Simon Van Bui. The Presence of Absence is the book title. Um, yeah, I had a great time talking to Simon. He had uh, a lot of really, really wonderful insights to share. He's an award-winning, best-selling author of more than a dozen books for adults and children. He's also the editor of three volumes of philosophy and has written for the New York Times, the Financial Times, the Washington Post, and the BBC. His books have been translated into many languages, an option for film. Um, he was raised in rural North Wales, currently lives in New York, where he is also a book editor and a volunteer EMT for Central Park Medical Unit and RVAC. Wow, he sounds like an interesting guy. The Presence of Absence is about a young writer uh, who lies dying, and he has one last story to tell, a tale of devotion and a meditation on what might lie beyond death. Max Little is bedridden in a New York hospital. Um, language is a map, he reflects, leading to a place not on the map. As the hours slip away, Max recalls both the moving and ordinary moments of his life with his beloved wife, Hadley, unsure of what lies ahead. Sounds really good. Um, and so Publishers Weekly says that uh, rich in setting an emotion, as ever with Van Bowie, the reader is in good hands. And the San Francisco Chronicle um, notes the book as the best fiction of 2022 and says Simon Van Bowie electrifyingly combines story with parable. The presence of absence boggles and reverberates wise, witty, and always breathtakingly beautiful. All right. And uh, so we'll listen in to uh, Sarah's interview with uh, Simon right now. All right. Hi, listeners. Thanks so much for joining us today. I'm happy to be here with Simon Van Boy, author of The Presence of Absence. Uh, Simon, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. I, I'm happy to be here. 
Um, well, as I was just saying, there's so much that I want to talk to you about. <laughs> it's a very thought-provoking book, very beautifully written. Um, but to start at the beginning, in the prologue, you give readers a little bit of a background on the inception of this book. Mm-hmm. Um, can you tell our listeners a bit about how this book came to be? Well, I um, I really lost faith in the publishing industry because um, one of the books that I like, uh, or the writing style I like, um, isn't popular at the moment, really. And um, a lot of uh, fiction sounds like people talking. Um, you know, it sounds like regular conversation, but I put, which is fine. But for me personally, I, I prefer fiction that feels like something completely different, something where there's real artistry or there's real um, something different about the language that makes me work a little bit. Um, and surprises me with these connections or words or expressions that are really fresh. Um, So, um, you know, I decided I was just going to write something that um, I really liked in the style that I wanted. And uh, if I couldn't get it published, then uh, it wouldn't matter. I would just find another job, find another career. I mean, um, not that I don't enjoy being a writer, but... um, I don't like to be sort of, I don't like to feel like I have to write a certain kind of thing in order to be recognized as a good writer because, you know, you realize that when a lot of probably people listening, your favorite writers are people that nobody's heard of. So I realized then that there's like, you know, literature in many ways is, is like every other industry in this country where it's trend-based or it's certainly become trend-based. And it, I suppose it always has been. And, but I'd rather, I just would rather read to my own, um, to my own um, tastes, rather than read what I'm told to read, uh, or what's been prescribed, so to speak. So um, I decided to just write something that I thought was good. Somebody once told me to write the book you've always wanted to read. And so, <laughs> foolishly, I decided to do that. And uh, and I came up with this book, and uh, and I, it just so happens that uh, I found a fantastic editor. Uh, I left Penguin, and uh, I went with an independent publisher called Godin, and I, I have really have the best editor in the world. Um, I mean, I take a, I take a bullet for my editor, no question. Um, he's a man of honor and and great skill as an editor and wonderful father, fantastic husband, just everything you want in a friend, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he also happens to be my editor. So uh, I really got lucky and um, he liked the book and I felt like he understood it and um, or understood what it was trying to do. And um, and so I actually he sort of redeemed my faith in modern publishing. But um, I'm not sure I'd ever go back to a, a corporate house now after I've had this experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's interesting. I've heard a lot of writers comment on their relationships with their editors, but I don't think I've heard anyone say they would take a bullet for their editor. So <laughs> that's very strong uh, praise. Um, and one of the things that jumped out at me about this novel, one way in which you sort of do buck the trends of publishing is 
you're really tapping into a theme of kindness and compassion. Mm-hmm. I think the characters in the book have a lot of kindness. Max, the main character, um, he's grappling with a, a terminal illness, and he thinks a lot about how that's going to affect his wife, how he can break the news to her in the way that will be the most gentle and compassionate for her. Um, he even thinks back on things like memories of a childhood bully and is able to bring nuance to those memories and bring sympathy to thinking about what that kid might have been going through. Um, and even in some of your other works too, I think that you're, you're exploring that idea of compassion, kindness, sympathy. Um, and it's not something that I think you see that much in literature these days. It's not inherently edgy or subversive or flashy. Um, but I think that you handle it in a very beautiful and authentic way. And, and I'm wondering if that's something that you intentionally kind of want to bring to the fore in your work. It's a very good question. Um, nothing I do is really intentional. Well, actually, anything I do in life which is intentional, I usually mess up. Um, like I tried to invest some money once, and uh, so I sold Bitcoin and bought oil. You know, I was that one fool. And um, so um, usually the things that come naturally are the things that work out quite well, like that old Chinese idea of Wu Wei, from the Tao Te Ching, um, which I think translated means to sort of do without doing. And I think what they mean by that is, you know, you're doing something and it feels so natural. Um, It's just sort of seamless. You you know, you're at that moment in harmony with every part of yourself. Um, And I suppose at one's happiest moments in life, one doesn't pause and think, oh, I'm happy right now. It's later on that you look back and you you realize, God, those were good days, you know. Um, So, and I think, so that idea of Wu Wei uh, is really interesting. Um, And and so uh, the idea of compassion and kindness, uh, I suppose that's just something I I was interested in before I realized I was interested in it. And certainly before I came to writing, it's hard to watch people suffer, Mm -hmm. you know. Um, and uh, no matter what they've done. Um, and um, one of my one of the people who got me into writing was an American writer called um, Maya Angelou. Uh, and I read her book uh, when I was a teenager. I couldn't believe it. It was so good. And it was, it was called I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings. And I know in America mm-hmm. it's a very popular book. But in, in England, uh, I don't know where I found it, but... Um, I thought, wow, this is writing, this kind of closeness with the reader, this kind of intimacy. Um, And also, you know, I watched an interview with her because I I became really sort of obsessed, actually, with with her work. And um, she said so many great things. Um, She said, people don't remember what you said, they remember how you made them feel. Mm -hmm. And I think that's true because I don't know, Sarah, if you remember being a child, but you don't remember what anyone said when you were a child, but you certainly remember how they made you feel. Yeah, um, yeah. And uh, she also said that, you know, she, she suffered through a lot of really terrible things, brutal things. But she said that um, she was able to find compassion for the people and forgive them and just move on with her life. Why be a prisoner? To Why, be a, why make yourself a prisoner of, of somebody else's bad deeds? Mm-hmm. And so I really like that attitude, um, and uh, I suppose we all have a duty in a way, you know, to others. Yeah, I think that's true. And, and her quote, too, is such a powerful one. Um, 
And you talked a, a little bit, you just touched on kind of the relationship with the reader and the closeness that she has with the reader. Yeah. Um, and that's something that comes up a lot in this book, too. I mean, the, the main story, you see the events of that happening to the protagonist, but a lot of the book is also about him relaying the story and how he narrates. And you have a lot of really interesting reflections on the process of storytelling and the process of communicating with a reader and how that's sort of a collaborative relationship and it's an active role on the part of the reader. Um, a quote that I pulled out here is through the act of reading this novel, it's actually you telling the story, um, you being the, the reader of the book. And I would love to hear you talk about kind of how you feel about that relationship with the reader. Is that partnership ever difficult or, or frightening? I mean, you've, you've written a book that presumably you've put a lot of work and blood, sweat and tears into and came from a personal place. And then you send it out there and you're handing it off to a stranger to take and they kind of take over that creative process. Um, so how do you feel about that, that collaborative relationship with the reader? And also, I know um, the kind of conceit of this book is that it's, it came from fragments of one writer, and now you are developing those into a book. Um, the, the writer who is uh, Max Little, that, that's kind of the name that you assign in the book. Um, and you're developing his fragments into a, the full novel. So does yeah. that, that relationship of creation with the writer and the reader, is that reflected in any way in that process of creating this book where you took someone else's fragments and then created them into something else? Yeah, it is. It's like the Patrushka, you know, like the Russian dolls that fit mm -hmm. inside each other. I think that's what they're called. But, yeah. um, but of course, unfortunately, I had to make up Max Little, um, hence the funny name, um, Maximum Little. Um, but because um, if I called him Little Max, he would have sounded like a rapper. Mm -hmm. um, so and, it, and then people would have asked, why not Lil Max? Mm -hmm instead of little max do you know what I mean? yeah. so um max little uh because the thing is halfway through the book the narrator dies well his body dies what happens to the rest we can only imagine but um so then i had a i had a craft problem of how to make the second half of the book tangible because where was the voice coming in the second part and I didn't want, I, I can't, I'm really worried about pacing, so I didn't want the, the, that to jar the reader's faith in the, in, in the book itself. So oh, my editor didn't think it was that big a problem, but it was keeping me awake, you know, so, and, uh, so uh, I decided to invent Max Little. And then the thing is then the second part of the book, people could say, oh, that's just Simon. The first part was Max and the second part is Simon. Simon's just taken over in the style of Max. Mm -hmm. But then the book is about like the idea that um, that we're not who we think we are. Meaning like for most of, for the last like say 40 years, I've believed that I was somebody called Simon mm -hmm. and that I grew up in a place called Wales and I, I lived in a, I lived in Kentucky and, and, I, and these are how I, these are my feelings and these are my tastes and my, um, these are my desires. But um, at some point, you know, one, I realized that uh, I'm not Simon, um, really, not at my core. I'm some kind of weird being 
an alien, of course, to the aliens on the other side of the universe, but some kind of almost like alien being that is sort of a, almost tabula rasa at birth and that I, I, I've, I've been mistaking myself for Simon this whole time. But when I die, then hopefully after, a, you know, hopefully at the age of 200, mm. when I die, um, you know, Simon will die because Simon's a persona that goes with this sort of body that people see. But really, there's got to be something more than that. I mean, scientifically, there has to be. Um, so I suppose, I suppose in a way, I, I, in this book, it was the idea that bodies don't create consciousness, they channel consciousness. Mm. And so this body that um, most people have to unfortunately see every day, especially the people I live with, they... Um, um, they uh, they think it's they think they recognize it as Simon, but it's not really Simon. It's um, so it, it, when you realize this, you can also refer to yourself in the third person, which is sort of mm -hmm. fun. Well, Simon has given up dairy, so he's having um, oat milk with his lattes now. Oh, why is that? Simon's body is it's not processing dairy the way it used to. Um, uh, so. But then when Simon's angry or Simon's sad, or then Simon's going through it. But I'm not. Mm -hmm. I'm just kind of like sitting on a stool, like in the back, like watching Simon go through all these emotions because uh, Simon's just the sum total of his experience, you know, with a sort of foundation, with a sort of, you know, under the ocean there's a landscape. I, think I, I try to, I sort of imagine that that's like my genetic profile and then the water mm -hmm. is sort of the environment you know so the water is shaped by what's underneath by what happens on top but of course nobody can see that um in a tangible way you know to immediately know what behavior is caused by what particular gene you know so um that makes any sense but um yeah so the idea that max is made up well simon's made up too mm -hmm. uh and um so, you know, you, we, you're Sarah and I'm Simon, but we're not really. I mean, like, I wonder who you are, really. Like, uh, and sometimes you meet people who kind of have sort of made this sort of leap mm -hmm. where you can sort of have a private little joke about it. Like, you know, that person being Olivia or, or Jordan or, you know, Moses or something. But they know that they're not really Moses. They know that this is just a particular vehicle they have at this time so are we meeting again after a long absence you know possibly who were we before um you know so when i see a picture of them um, i saw two foxes on tiktok and they were running and they appeared to be friends and uh, and that could have been us sarah you know because mm -hmm. the picture was taken a long time ago so i like to think that you know that everything's sort of in flux and then if you look at buddhism and hinduism you know and some other religions, uh, mostly from the from Asia, um, there's the idea that you know we suffer because we become attached to a particular thing, but nothing is um, immovable. No, that that's fascinating, and it's such a liberating way of looking at it too. I think to have that a little bit of distance from yourself and kind of release that ownership of the self. Um, and it's interesting to hear how you talked about 
kind of your self-conception evolving over time. And I, I feel mm. like a lot of your writing is very observational. It, it really lives in like observing day-to-day life and how people think, how people act and feel. Um, do you feel like as a writer, you've gotten maybe better or at least evolved in some way in your writing over time as you've experienced life and met more people and, and learned more about yourself? I feel like that sort of bringing wisdom to your writing is, is hard to do when you're 20 years old, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it's something that a lot of writers, I think, grow into over time. Do you think that you've seen that change in your work over time? Yeah, that's a good question. I think there's one part of, of me which which hasn't really changed, but it is, but it is moving. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of going in a circle that's generating energy. And I see that in young writers and when I see talent. You know, I see somebody comes to me with a work and it's not very good, but in it I can see great talent. And that's that sort of this ring of fire which is like burning in them. So then how do you take that talent and make it make something? Because there's a difference between good writing and a good book. Good writing mm-hmm. is not necessarily a good book uh, because there are sort of rules of the craft of writing. Um, it's a sort of a, a kind of engineering. So I think that um, I've become... I've become a more experienced editor over the last uh, 30 years that I've been writing. And uh, 30, 40 years, because I'm actually quite old. But um, yes, I've become become quite experienced at editing. Uh, But I think that part of me, which the observational part you so kindly mentioned, that stayed the same in the same way that you know, you could meet somebody after not seeing them. For, you meet so you were friends with somebody when you that you were seven and eight years old, say, and then you meet them forty, fifty years later, and you know they might be more cultivated or more experienced, mm-hmm. or they might be more vulgar, or but fundamentally they're the same. And so I think that um, whatever our storytelling, uh, art, like you know, a spider has, I think, has many eyes, right? I think so. Yeah. Um, so oh, it's creepy. <laughs> But uh, I suppose spider spiders might say that about us too. Well, you said you've become a more experienced editor oh, yeah, over yeah. time, but the yeah. the observational part, I think, was, has been more essential to you. Is that kind of where you're going? Yeah. So what, you know, the thing is, I'm, I want to write about the same thing all the time. Mm-hmm. And that's anything that emotionally sort of grips me. You're like Velcro. You know, you go out, you walk through a field and bits of like, plant will like stick to your trousers sometimes i think that's how velcro was invented but anyway um so um you know you you have ideas that you don't choose what to write it chooses you but in order to be chosen you have to be emotionally open which means you have to be vulnerable uh which means you're in danger mm-hmm. um so writers are very courageous people in that way so say you're open and you you an idea will choose you to write it then, you know, you might not make a very good job of it because you haven't really learned the craft. But a good editor will see the talent in there and then develop your your skills in the craft. Um, some young writers are re- resistant to learning the craft. They feel like the, what they write should be enough. But that's a, that's a poor attitude, I think, uh, because I'm, I'm always learning too. I mean, just like whereas I'm helping young writers, other writers, more experienced writers, are helping me. In fact, a writer, very experienced writer, one of America's greatest writers, she pointed out to me a few weeks ago that the ending of my new book was not very good at all. Uh, and so I rewrote the last 30 pages. 
because editorially she explained to me why it wasn't very good. And it would have taken me three or four more books to understand that she was right. So I just took her word for it. But I like, I like the new ending better. But having faith in others and learning from others, I think, is a wonderful, a wonderful thing. Um, so, yeah, I've learned a lot as an editor. So I'm able to do things a bit quicker now. I'm able to develop a story a bit quicker because I know editorially I feel like I have more control over the roller coaster. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Um, and I have a few other questions I want to get to. But first, do you have a passage that you can share with us from the book? Oh, yeah, I'll just pull it up on my computer. Hold on. Sure. I wonder as I write this sentence, if you are alive, and if those we lose come back to the place you're reading this from, maybe they are near us all the time and we don't even know. There's more evidence for reincarnation than for the existence of God. Consider for a moment that those we've lost do return. I read somewhere that grief is the distillation of memory and desire. But neither memory nor desire acknowledged our son Adam before he was conceived. So why do I trust these faculties now? It's unsettling to think that loving someone depends on our ability to remember them. If the feeling we call love wasn't reliant on memory, then men who have children they don't know about would feel their existence in the world. And so without memory, the conventional definition of love is not possible. Therefore, what we call love is merely a survival mechanism bordering on narcissism, despite the power we ascribe to it. Let's play a game. Imagine that part of my illness means losing my ability to remember now, while I'm alive. Would I forget my wife? Yes. Adam, too, our late son? Certainly. I would lose what little I have of him, even though the event of his life would still have taken place. And herein lies another reason not to fear dying. Bear with me now, because this is more than just a concept or some conceited form of escapism. For even though memory dies, the events, though not remembered, still took place. Perhaps then it's only nature that has a memory of memory. But what form could a record of what we forget take? Look around. Better yet, Push your hands through the skin of a river, lay down in any field, spread amidst the roots of trees, inhale dusk. If those we've lost return here, we can't rely on memory to help us recognise them, which means there's only one thing to do. If you want to keep loving the ones you claim to have lost, you must be willing to love everyone. Because anybody could be anybody. Even you are not who you think you are, at least in part. Which means even the most seemingly abhorrent creature is worthy of love. Or no one is, ever. And so if you truly wish to love beyond the tricks of memory, there can be no distinction between the cockroach and the kitten, a stranger's child and your very own progeny. That's how it has to work, otherwise it's a con. And what you claim is love is nothing more than the survival mechanism I mentioned, a reaction to fear, a permissible narcissism, a prelude to self-pity. So release any love you've been withholding, set it loose upon all living things, and then wait. Just wait. Those you grieve will find their way back to you in a form that makes it possible. Woof, meow scuttle buzz squeak 
got any spare change because they won't know at first who or what you are, only that the world is suddenly more beautiful. If you think all this is unbelievable and you'll be spared the suffering of myself, this gradual breaking down of everything you love until there's nothing left, not even someone to remember when there was something, then put this story away until the time of your first panic, when your eyes are finally open and your life is coming apart like a tissue in water. I'll be waiting right here on this page where you left me, a dropped seed. And then I promise, I promise you, we will grow and you will prosper as fiercely as you wither. That's beautiful. Um, Thanks. Sorry the computer is rolling around. Oh, no, it's fine. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, you have such such interesting ideas about mortality in there and kind of flipping our traditional Western conceptions on their head in some ways. I mean, I, I know you, you mentioned that writing this was medicinal or therapeutic in some ways. Do you feel like it, the process of writing this novel affected your own feelings about mortality or your, your, the ways that you look at your own lifespan? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it was sort of, a, I think we write about what we're interested in. Mm -hmm. um, and that's why when writers feel like they have to write something that's popular or they have to write something that's going to sell, they really go against that. Because what makes a person unique, what defines a person's life is their passion, their interests. And that's what, so that's what makes you you. So if you're not going to explore that and write about it, you're imitating somebody else. Um, you know, I say, I, 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 as an editor, you know, I say that what makes somebody iconic is that they stood apart and they were fearlessly themselves. But I think to be a good writer, you have to be prepared for everyone to hate you. And you have to be okay with that. Um, and even if you look at people in, in the past who've really changed things, like they were killed or imprisoned or put to death. You know, probably some of the greatest writers in the world alive today are in prison or exiled or cast out. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I suppose if we, I suppose if we weren't like this, then we might have the cure for cancer and stuff like that. You know, we might be able to like move around and do things in space. Mm -hmm. I mean, recreational things, not like research. Um, yeah, like like how many of our greatest minds are actually brought onto the the world stage in a way where they can share their their gifts? I guess. Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. Well, I mean. Um, yeah, I mean, we've got our, you know, Dr. Jenner, Edward Jenner, you know, we've got our Mozarts and our Beethovens. But think of all the others. I mean, they're just mm -hmm. a splinter on the tree of those we've missed. Yeah. You know, um, because, you know. But, you know, if you look at history um, and if you look at statistics and data, we're living in the best time because there's, I think, over 7 billion people alive and now and then i think in 1960 there were about 3.2 billion so we've doubled we've more than doubled but we've been in this current genetic form for about 200,000 years okay obviously hairier and with much worse teeth mm -hmm. unless you're british and then just <laughs> the hairy part um then um it took 199,960 years to get to 3.2 billion mm -hmm. and then it took 60 years 
63 years to get to seven point something. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? So we've like, it's unbelievable. I mean, we're, we've doubled, and, but yet the amount of war and hatred and has not doubled. In fact, it's gone down. But the fact that we can document things now is, um, makes it feel like it's omnipresent. Mm-hmm. But if you look at the data, we're getting kinder, we're getting more loving, we're becoming more inclusive. I mean, it's happening. You know, sometimes people resist people who are maybe in pain or afraid. But you can't deny the, the data. It looks good for us as humans. Mm-hmm. But, but of course, it, it's, people feel more in control if they, if they sort of, you know, if it's all doom and gloom. You know, it's, you feel more in control if you're a Debbie Downer. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, you can take steps to this and that. And, um, you know what I mean? The things we're afraid of yeah. usually don't come to light. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, if you really are afraid, I, I mean, if you really want to do something for, for your future to live a long time, I would say take your blood pressure, you know, and maybe get a test your cholesterol. Because mm-hmm. those are the things that really do impact a lot of people than things they can actually do something about. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think that we we almost have a more negative attitude these days than ever, or at least that's what it seems like. Yeah, seems and yet like our lives are better than ever before in so many ways. Yeah, well, if you look at a lot of also intellectual, so-called intellectual publications, they're very cynical. Mm-hmm. It's very easy to point the finger. But remember what Bob Marley said, you know, just when you're pointing the finger, someone's pointing it at you. Mm-hmm. So well, that might have been the whalers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. Um, so I, I wanted to ask too about uh, more of like your your range of writing in your career, um, because I, I know you've written in so many different media and genres. I mean, novels, short stories, articles, philosophy, um, children's books, I believe maybe a short film or two. Um, but I don't know if I've ever heard of you writing poetry and your your prose writing is very poetic, like it's very musical. It's dense in the sense of it feels like every word and every line is very considered. Um, and even in this book, the way that you use page breaks in some places, it's not it's not always just kind of the natural page break with the typesetting. Sometimes you're intentionally breaking the page, almost like a, a line break or a stanza break. Mm-hmm. Um, do, you, do you write poetry? Do you read poetry? Do you find inspiration from verse for your fiction writing? Yeah, I do. I love I love reading poetry. Poetry for me is like it's like the pure. It's like um, it's like what was that thing that Superman had in the Superman films, not the comics? Oh, that, in fact, they are in the comics. It's oh, a gosh. type of substance. I know Kryptonite is the bad <laughs> one, right? That's the bad <laughs> one. So it's like an opposite. The Kryptonite must have a sort of something that's chemically opposite to Kryptonite. Mm-hmm. Then that gives him power, like or Energon for Transformers. Yeah. Do you know the Transformers? Um, machines. That... I've I, I know the basic premise, but I've never actually seen any of the movies or read the comics. So they're anthropomorphized vehicles, mm-hmm. um, and they're very popular with children um, and writers. But <laughs> um, yeah, Energon. So oh, how do we get onto that? Oh. Uh, so poetry. Oh yeah, poetry. So poetry is like this. For me, it's like the pure. It's the core. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, unfortunately, I've read enough poetry to know that my poetry is, um, is it's interesting to me, but I'm not able to engage the reader in the way that I feel like I can as a prose writer. 
It's very kind of you to say that. I mean, there's poems that just haunt me, like The Fish by Elizabeth Bishop. Mm-hmm. Isn't that just a metaphor for life? Yeah, yeah, I love her work. It's so, so visceral, but kind of delicate yeah. at the same time. Yeah, I mean, I just, you read a poem sometimes and you just want to sit down and cry. Mm-hmm. You know, because you don't know why, you know? Philip Larkin is a big influence. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and T.S. Eliot's Four Quartets is a great book. You know, in school, in English classes, when we were reading stuff, I was like, I don't get it. I just don't get any of it. Mm-hmm. I thought, I mean, you must be stupid. <laughs> I just didn't get anything, you know. But then later on, when you meet, sometimes, you know, you run into a teacher that's not officially a teacher. But they're mm-hmm. like, no, 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 Simon, you're missing the point. This is why Shakespeare is good. Come on, let's go and mm-hmm. watch Let's go and watch Macbeth. And then you watch it with talented actors and you're like, I can't believe that just happened, you know? Because often in high school you see Shakespeare performed by like high school students or college students, which ruins it. Because, I mean, ask any person in film, you know, the easiest way to sync everything is to hire, you know, poor actors. Mm -hmm. But a good actor can raise the level of anything, you know? So, um, yeah, I think um, I'd love to... I think teaching is probably the most important thing I do in my life. Um, well, I guess we're we're almost out of time, so I'm going to have to wrap up here soon. But oh, before no. we go, I, I know I would I have like four pages of questions here, but I'm editing myself. Oh, you know, I just talk too much. <laughs> no, no, I please don't don't hold back because your answers are they're truly interesting and inspiring. Um, but I, I do want to ask you: Do you have if you could give one piece of advice to yourself? as a younger writer, maybe when you were at the advent of your career, is there something that you would want to go back and tell yourself? I just think I'd give myself a hug and, hug and say, I love you, brother. Just keep going. Mm-hmm. Just what do the grateful dead say? Just keep trucking. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's a good, a good thought for all of us, I think. Um, well, thank you so much for being here, Simon. This is wonderful. Man, and... It was a pleasure. I'm, I'm like, I, I just thank you for connecting people and for us connecting and I mean what else can we do but connect that's the best Mm -hmm. we can hope for right so thank you Sarah yeah well thank you um and I encourage everyone to check out the presence of absence and Simon's other works and uh, they're also good coasters that is true (laughs) if you read in there books are are good for decor they're good for all sorts of things For all things Charlotte Readers Podcast, check out charlottereaderspodcast.com. You can find a list of all episodes, an alphabetical guest list with links, detailed show notes for each episode, a community blog, and more. We'd love to have you visit. All right, uh, before we wrap things up today, we have an elevator pitch, uh, no book recommendations today. We hope we've given you some in the previous episodes that uh, you're still plowing through those, but... uh, this uh, pitch is from uh, Stacy Sims. Let's listen in. Perfection is not an option when it comes to raising a child who has type 1 diabetes, but it's all too easy to feel like a failure. In my first book, The World's Worst Diabetes Mom, I explained how mistakes can become your secret superpower. Now I'll show you how my philosophy of not perfect but safe and happy can pay off as a child with T1D moves toward independence as a young adult. Still the world's worst diabetes mom. This journey is not easy, but you are not alone. 
great podcast voice there, Stacey. She yeah, she does have a podcast, by the way, <laughs> The Worst Diabetes Mom. Uh, and we had her on the show way back when, when she had her first book out. Uh, thanks for that. Uh, and folks, uh, you, you can submit your own elevator pitches as well, and uh, maybe they'll be on the show. So uh, check that opportunity out uh, on our website. Uh, all right. Uh, let's see. What's coming next, uh, Sarah? Um, we've got a great episode next time. We're going to feature award-winning author and founder of Star Creek Press, Julie Matheson, in her novel The Starlet Letter, which has been described by our viewers as a quirky, lighthearted historical mystery um, and one with wonderfully developed characters. We also feature Robert Favarad, author of In Transit Passenger, Making the Journey Matter. He's going to share his blog post called Writing That Next Chapter. Plus, we're going to have a thought-provoking Charlotte two-minute tip, elevator pitches, and book recommendations. All right, uh, Hannah, you want to take us out of here? Yeah. All right, guys, just read on, ride on, and rock on. (laughs) (laughs) 